Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn. I am so thrilled to have you back with me for this next arc we are getting into within our New York State of Crime series. It is time to deep dive into the two Mrs. Grenvilles and explore both the fact and the fiction within the Dominic Dunn 1985 Ramona Clay. You don't need to have read the book, y'all. We're going to get into it all. All the spiderwebs, all the real things, all the fictitious things. And this case is right up Dominic's alley. It is a suspicious death. It is high society. It is scandalous. It is shocking. The death of Billy Woodward provides a peek inside the lives of the world of the very rich. Dunn will say about this whole affair, it is where ambition led to tragedy and money influenced justice. Sounds like our man Nick, right? Billy's 1955 death is called the shooting of the century. And his wife has quite a reputation. And Billy is from one of the finest families in New York. Everyone wants all the lurid and scandalous details, including us. Let's investigate. I'm going to pick up with this Peter Buckley piece, remember from last week in our teaser, Murder Most Swank from Vanity Fair in July 1985. Peter Buckley writes, This month, Crown is publishing Dominic Dunn's novel, The Two Mrs. Grenvilles, the true and full story, according to the acid-tongue Capodish narrator, Basil Plant, of an ambitious showgirl who propels herself to society's top rung, only to have the latter pulled out from beneath her when she shoots her husband. The locations and many of the details are identical, but this is fiction. This story is 30 years old and most of the people involved are long gone, says the unacidic, affable Dunn. A few key things here just in this opening paragraph, investigators. Let's go back to that sentence. The acid-tongued, capodish narrator, Basil Plant. This is the only time in fiction work that Dunn is not using his own pseudonym of Gus Bailey, and it's his breakout novel. Why is this? The Two Mrs. Grenvilles comes out in 1985, and Dominic has been through the murder of his beloved daughter Dominique and the trial of her killer in 1982-1983. The mid-80s are also after his crash and burn from Hollywood in the late 1970s. Remember, Dunn's marriage is ended He has a pretty intense drug and alcohol problem, and one day decides to end one life and start another. Dominique, his daughter, will pay his last month's rent in Hollywood, and Dunn sells everything, including his dog Alfie, to take off to a one-room cabin in Oregon at the foothills of the Cascade Mountains. That's not his destination, mind you. It just happens to be where the car he's driving breaks down. Dunn will continue to stay on for six months at this tiny cabin, not using substances, getting sober, and dealing with it all. All the failure, all the fallout from his life so far. He will say of this, it was an extraordinary experience. The experience of being alone and coming to a realization about yourself. 
and the reason it didn't work out. The reason it didn't work out wasn't on anyone else. It was on me. I had brought it on myself. I was the creator of my own failure. Dominic spends six months feeding the same birds. He says he's never thought about birds in his life. But Dunn knows he wants to write. And he's going to begin his writing career by writing letters. Long letters to his kids, his siblings, and the few friends he still has left in this sorry world that he's trying to figure out how to live in. Dunn is really in the middle of a pretty intense burn it all down to rebuild it all period. This is like 1979. Dunn will say, I was in financial and career ruined. I had left Hollywood a whipped dog. I had just screwed up my entire life with substances and things. And as he's hanging out in the cabin, getting over his addictions, he really thinks about just staying there, just never leaving. It's fine. He gets to feed the birds and he gets to write all day. And Dunn will continue. He'll say, out of the blue, I got this letter from Truman Capote, who'd heard that I'd dropped out of my life. Truman told him he couldn't hide out forever. Dunn says, he said, that's not where you belong. When you get out of it, what you went there to get, you have to come back. Y'all, I find this fascinating. This is the narrator, Truman Capote, that Dominic Dunn goes to when he will write. And what's even more extraordinary, this is 1979 when Truman Capote is writing Dominic Dunn. He is in the process of his own failure spiral. We're going to be covering more about this dynamic in future episodes, but I set the stage here because I think it's so key to understanding the motivations for all of our players in this Woodward arc. It goes a lot farther than you may think it does just on first glance. But wait, there's more. I'm going to pick back up from the Peter Buckley piece here, quoting Dominic Dunn. I only saw Ann Woodward once at the Stork Club. I was just out of college, and there was this woman across the room, the most striking woman I ever saw. She was wearing a light blue strapless gown, and just before she got up to dance, she tugged at the top of the dress to pull it up and out. Very sexy. I don't know if it was her husband she was dancing with, but I do know that she was singing lyrics into his ear and he was roaring with laughter, and I assumed they were risque lyrics. I can still see her. Y'all, this is 1953, when Dominic Dunn is watching this creature of Anne Woodward doing her thing right before it's all about to go down. This same year, 1953, Dominic will meet Lenny. They will get married in April 1954. Right after their marriage, they'll have a small apartment, In Madison Heights in the 80s, he's working for Playhouse 90 at the time. Continuing from Dunn here, two years later, the killing was all over the news. I devoured it. Couldn't get enough of it. But when I set out to write a book about it, I chose not to do it as nonfiction, because then you never know what went on behind closed doors. With a murder, only two people know what happened, and one of them happens to be dead. This is a novel loosely based on an actual event that occurred in a rich New York family in the 1950s. That's the legal phrasing, and I'm going to stick to it. Dunn, a contributing editor of Vanity Fair, is known for his pithy insights into society, but the article that brought him to journalism was quite different. Justice was Dunn's harrowing retelling of the 1983 trial of John Sweeney 
the admitted strangler of Dunn's 22-year-old daughter, Dominique. Published in March 1984 in Vanity Fair, it was, according to Dunn, a life exorcism. I never could have done this book if I hadn't done that first. Back to Peter Buckley. During the trial, Dunn became intimate with court procedures. Thus, the Woodward case held a new fascination for him. I talked to over 60 people, and a lot of them still hate her with a passion. Those were the ones willing to talk. The police in Mineola opened up their locked files for me. They even had the seating plan of Edith Baker's party. I noticed that 30 of the guests had used exactly the same phrase about the Woodwards. They were an ideally suited couple. That means they had all gotten together to protect their own. I actually knew some of the people at that party, and I wrote to one of them to ask if I could interview him about it. He wrote back, I hardly knew them and I can't remember anything about that night. Thirty years after these people made their pact, they were still sticking to it. They hated the woman and believed she was guilty, but they couldn't betray their class. To bury a crime? Now, that's power. I have a great fascination with the rich and the powerful in criminal circumstances. I'm also intrigued by the outsiders who come into a closed society and break the rules. That's your setup, folks. That's the two Mrs. Grenvilles. It is the beginning, in double pseudonym form, of Dominic Dunn making his talent known, talking to people, researching a case, getting into a case that he was already so much obsessed with in the mid-1950s. Let's go ahead and get into the facts of the actual case, so to speak. It all begins, as most stories do, with a boy and a girl. Let's begin with Ann Woodward, who will become the bombshell that blows apart New York high society. But she doesn't start out that way. Humble beginnings Ann has. She starts as Evangeline Eden Lucille Crowell, born December 12, 1915 in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Angie, as she is called, has a dad who's a farmer and a mom who runs a taxi stand. But mom believes in Angie and thinks her daughter is a star. And Angie from the get-go is always looking to better herself. Mom and dad do divorce and mom will get a new hubby and that doesn't go so great. But everything mama does is in dedication and service of Angie. Getting a better home, being able to pay for dance lessons, having a better dress. You get it. Mom is driving Angie's ambitions through her own failed ones. So Angie is a teenager, gets a job in the secondhand junior league store. Sure, she's saving money because Angie wants to get out of Pittsburgh, Kansas as fast as she can. But Angie's also learning and watching and being ever observant about the clothes, the movements, the accents, everything that the highfalutin kind of girls do in Pittsburgh, Kansas, is what Angie's aiming for. She is determined to better her station in the world. In 1937, Angie moves to New York City, the greatest city in the world, with $400 in her pocket and dreams of making it big. Angie wants to be a star, so she quickly changes her name to Ann Eden, and there are classes and lessons, and soon enough, 
and signs with the John Roberts Powers Modeling Agency. Through the Powers Agency, Anne will land roles as a radio actress. She was voted the most beautiful girl in radio in 1940. She'll also have a role in Noelle Coward set to music. Lots of successes here, for certain. But a girl does have to pay the bills, and times are tough. So Anne Eden is going to pick herself up a nighttime job, dancing as a chorus girl at Fifi's Monte Carlo Nightclub, which opens with great fanfare in March of 1939. Fifi's Monte Carlo Nightclub is located at 49th East 54th Street. It's described as wow wow. Fifi's has the highest cover charge in the whole city. There is only a brief window of time, though, that Fifi's is open. It opens in 39. It will begin bankruptcy filings in 1942. But in the three years Fifi's is operational, it does give Anne a chance to get in with the high rollers. These dudes who are paying big bucks to get behind closed doors for the dancing girls and the orchestra. This is a fantastic sentence from the New York Times in 1939 upon Fifi's opening. In a town where many havens are so dim as to require flashlights while perusing the menu, Miss Draper has fashioned a softly but gaily lit gigolo's conception of paradise. (laughs) Gigolo's conception of paradise. I love that. The article has a few other fascinating sentences. But if the room itself is the very epitome of shishi, consider the entertainment. Periodically, the lights in the room go down. A curtain is drawn slowly back to reveal an array of Mr. Powers's young pretties, stiffly arrayed in fashion magazine plates. All right. The Miss Draper being referred to here is Dorothy Draper, the interior decorator of the day. She does redo the inside of Fifi's. The Mr. Powers Young Pretties, that is the John Roberts Powers of the John Roberts Powers Modeling Agency, which is how Anne gets her gig at Fifi's. Let's be honest about it. Fifi's Monte Carlo Club is a great place for an ambitious girl like Anne to have placed herself. It is filled with high-dollar sugar daddies. Anne will meet one of these older, influential men, William Woodward Sr., William Woodward Sr. is the president and chairman of Hanover Bank and Trust. William Sr. is legitimately a huge deal in old money, in all the money, really. He's an enormous player with a lot of cash, a lot of influence, a lot of power. William Sr. has a wife and kids, but that, of course, does not stop his dallying about. I mean, men can dally all they want, as long as it's kept quiet. Wives tend to let it go in accommodation and trade off for the benefits they get from their powerful husband. It's all an agreement. And William Sr.'s wife is a proper lady, with quite a pedigree of her own. Her name is Elizabeth Ogden Crider Woodward. She goes by Elsie. And Elsie is a lady who rightly believes your name belongs in the press three times in your whole life. Your birth, your marriage, and your death, and them's the rules. Elsie has a pretty nefarious and complicated family history, that we're going to get into within the next episodes. But what you need to know now is that she is tough for reasons. 
And Elsie will do just about anything to hang on to the proud family name, the family line, and the power and privilege that it brings. William Sr. and Elsie, big money, high names and connections. They do have five kids. They have four daughters right up in a row. And then finally, their fifth child is a son, William Jr., who comes into the world June 12th, 1920, blessedly, and their very happy, very rich family of seven is complete. The Woodwards do have a six-story mansion located on East 86th Street. They have a home in Newport. They also have a racing horse farm in Maryland, too, called Bel Air. All the Woodward kids are going to go to the proper schools and have the right everything. I need you to know with the Woodwards that image is everything. This is a great time to take a moment and hear from our sponsors this week. We're going to be back to the dish in no time at all, friends. So let's get us back to Fifi's Monte Carlo. And there is high dollar Woodward Sugar Daddy, and he's looking for a little side and will invite Anne to go see his horses, which is not a euphemism. William Sr. does have horses. Breeding and racing is his thing at his farm in Maryland. Bel Air is the fanciest horse farm in the country. So there's that. Anne does go visit William Sr.'s horses, and potentially there's a bit of dallying. Anne has landed the biggest target in New York City. William Sr. is 65. Anne is in her mid-20s, but she is going to use these connections for all it is worth. Her foot is in the door. But William Sr., sugar daddy, he knows girls like this. He's not fooled. They are to be used and then paid and then dismissed. But William Sr. has got himself a real, a real crux inside of his heart. He just doesn't think his son Billy, who is 21, is really kind of the man he should be. Billy is shy and awkward, and he is decidedly not smooth with the ladies. Billy really only has one super good friend. His name is Granville Baker. But for uh, poor Billy, 21 years, he's been a constant disappointment to his father. Billy's been coddled by his mother, but he's never been good enough for dad. And dad, well, wants to get Billy some experience, so to speak. And this is where... (laughs) Daddy gets a great idea, (laughs) and boy, Billy, will meet girl Anne because Daddy sets him up. William Sr.'s like, Anne, just dance with him. Maybe show him what to do around the ladies. You know what I mean. You can teach him things, right? I'm going to tell him to ask you out, and you say yes, and please show my boy the world. So Daddy sets son up on a date with Anne. This first date happens in March of 1942. Billy Jr.'s 21, Anne is 26, and Billy is gaga over Anne. Smitten kitten. Anne is everything different from every other girl he's ever known. Anne is fresh and sassy. She's got a gorgeous body that she's sharing with him as well, and Billy is done for. He has decided Anne is the love of his life. Billy's parents are not quite as thrilled. Now, Daddy Woodward knows the score. This was supposed to be an arrangement. Daddy knew the arrangement. Anne knew the arrangement. Anne was supposed to do the thing and then go, leaving Billy Jr. 
ready for the future that his parents have meticulously planned for him, including the proper girl, the proper job, babies, and continuing all the things every other generation in society has done before him. Mama Elsie, oh, Mama Elsie is horrified. Billy will bring Anne to the mansion in the Upper East Side and wowza, it is bad. See, Elsie has Anne's number. It's easy enough to see that Anne is beautiful, but Elsie also senses that Anne is dangerous. She thinks Anne is too hungry, too ambitious, just too, too. Also, Anne is a cut-rate chorus girl, and there's no way that this choice is going to work for Billy as a wife, according to Elsie. What's the surest way to guarantee a bad choice? Make sure your parents are against them. Anne has never looked more attractive to Billy Jr., and the more Elsie protests about Anne, the more Billy wants to marry her. And it is in March of 1943 that the two will marry in Tacoma, Washington, where Billy is stationed. He is enlisted in the war effort, and before he ships off, he will propose he wants to marry Anne before he goes to war, and Anne agrees readily. Anne has got her man, but at what price? Now, Billy, being a proper traditional boy and all that, wants to ask Anne's father for permission to marry her. That's the way it's done, after all. Anne is going to outright lie at this point. My father's dead. Now, Anne's mother really has passed away, but her father is alive and well in Pittsburgh, Kansas. But Anne will tell Billy, tearfully, that she is an orphan. There is no one to ask for her hand. Elsie is beyond. Furious, done with Billy. It is war. Elsie does not attend the wedding. William Sr. will attend because Mama Elsie makes Daddy fly out to Washington State to make a last-minute attempt to talk Billy Jr. out of this whole mistake, but to no avail. The wedding does happen, and it is then, <laughs> on the honeymoon, that Anne reveals the past relationship with Bill's father and that he's the one who set them up and Billy Jr. is understandably upset but Anne swears that nothing happened with she and William Sr. It was just a introduction, but this will begin the cycle that Anne and Billy will play in over and over until his death. See these two? They fight and they make up. They fight and they make up. They both really enjoy the pleasures of the bedroom and they'll fight just to resolve things behind closed doors. But from the beginning, from the honeymoon night, y'all, there's tension, there's fights, there's making up over and over. But alas, Anne is soon pregnant, and Billy is soon shipped off to the South Pacific, and here it is Mama Elsie who's going to take it on the chin and invite Anne to move back to New York City into the six-story mansion to deliver the child and, well, learn how to be a proper lady or as proper as Elsie can make her. Anyway, while Anne is cooking the first grandchild, she is almost back in that junior league shop, at least in her mind. But whoa, the items have gotten a lot pricier. Anne is beginning to soak up everything that Elsie is teaching her. The right dishes, the right arrangements, the right labels, how to dress, how to sit, how to laugh. 
It is a hard crash course from Elsie and Billy's sisters too, really. They're changing Anne. They're molding Anne into something that is far more acceptable to them and to the society that they live in. And Anne, she is a sponge. She's so willing. She's so ambitious. Anne does deliver a son, William III. He's called Woody. And now Anne has it all. Her husband, her son, a place sitting at the top of high society with an education in it from no less than Elsie Woodward, although not necessarily willingly given. And it is when Billy returns from war that he is shocked to find his wife changed. She is not the firecracker of a girl he married. He adores this very different creature and he comes home with the right clothes and the right posture and the right laugh and the right movements. And now she's like every other girl he didn't marry in the first place. Billy adored about Anne that she was entirely different from what was expected of him. That's the intrigue. And Anne, who now has for two years learned everything she could, soaked it up like a sponge to try to be something better for Billy, to fit in, to be an asset to him. These two really are at cross purposes. Anne is crushed at Billy's response upon his return. He's not only disappointment, he's rageful. Billy will tell Anne, if that's what I wanted, I would have married the real thing. Ouch. But the couple's together. And they're married, and Anne has landed among the upper crust, and she's not going to waste that chance. It's parties and nightclubs. There's also fooling around on his part and hers, too. Billy's kind of bored. I mean, sure, he's got a job, but it's a job that Daddy lined up, and it's not like he really has to go to work every day. Billy's got a lot of time to slack off, to drink, to smoke, and to chase women. What I'm trying to say is Billy has a lot of time to generally be discontented about his life. And Anne is partying like it's 1999. She's cheating too, but much more discreetly. But see, when Billy does it, Anne's not so cool with that. Anne believes Billy's cheating on her, and she's going to hire a private investigator to track her husband, and voila, an affair is revealed. Billy is fooling around with Marina Torlonia, an Italian-American aristocrat whose family is legit royalty in Italy. The Torlonias essentially are the bankers of the Vatican. They're a big deal. Marina is also married. Her husband at this time is a man named Francis Shields. He's an amateur tennis player, but loaded with cash. Also, fun fact to note, Marina Torlonia is the paternal grandmother of Brooke Shields. But at this point, long before she's the grandmother of Brooke Shields, Marina has her sights set on Billy. Marina's chasing him, and Billy doesn't exactly put up a whole lot of resistance. Now, Anne is not in that unusual of a position. Husbands in this set fool around with married ladies all the time, and married ladies fool around with the men all the time. Think uh, weekend country parties across the pond. There's lots of sharing doors, lots of bed jumping, and no other wife would have gotten up in Billy's grill to confront him, but Anne does. Anne is so terrified of losing Billy that she puts her foot down, rails against it. 
The thing you also want to know is that Anne is taking a tremendous amount of pills daily. Uppers, downers, everything in between. She has locked herself into a pretty extensive drug habit. Add to that daily large amounts of alcohol, as well as late nights every night that turn into mornings. And none of it's really great on her health or psyche. Billy and Anne do present a unified front to the world when their next son is born in 1947. Jimmy is kid number two, and this is going to wrap up the childbearing for Anne. And at this point, Mama Elsie is like, y'all cannot live in my home anymore. So Anne and Billy are going to get a fancy mansion of their own in the city, as well as buy a little cottage on the Gold Coast of Long Island in Oyster Bay. And Anne, with all of Elsie's training, becomes the hostess with the mostest. She is desperately trying to win Billy's approval, and as usual, Billy, discontent, is even still bringing Marina around, which will bring Anne and Billy now to physical violence within their fight makeup, fight makeup. At this point, Anne decides not to file charges against Billy because of the scandal, but Billy decides he really does want to be with Marina who is in the process of splitting from husband number one, Billy moves out. And he's so close to almost being free. So close. Billy and Marina could have a totally different future, but Anne is not going to give up that easy. Her whole life is Billy. And her whole image is wrapped in him. The family's name, the family's money, the family's position. And Anne's going to hire herself an attorney and demand the impossible if Billy wants to divorce her. $2 million. It's such an outrageous sum at this time that Anne knows he'll never agree to it. It's not just the money that's holding Billy back. Billy and Elsie cannot think of the damage to the family name that a divorce would have. Divorce in this set of high society just isn't done. Not in these mainline families like the Woodwards. And, and Billy caves into ending the affair with Marina and moving back in with Anne, knowing he cannot fulfill her divorce demands. And this is where you really think about the choices, right? Because the scandal and the death that is coming is so much worse than maybe just taking one to the chin to obtain a divorce and causing a little ruffle temporarily, but... People do make their choices. By 1952, the couple is overseas on safari for a few months, and Anne is learning how to use a shotgun, which will prove deadly. In 1953, Daddy Woodward passes away, with Billy never really having obtained his father's approval, but Billy will obtain his father's millions, as well as the horse farm in Maryland, Bel Air. Anne really encourages a new leaf in Billy. Certainly, you can be a horseman like your father, and Billy's going to finagle his sister. His sister really does love horses and racing, but he kind of boots her out of the way to become the new big man on the track, so to speak. And honestly, Billy does. He's making his name known in racing circles and building a better reputation with his father dead than Billy ever had with his father alive. And Billy gets this one particular horse, Nashua. 
And Nashua is an enormous deal. This horse is fast and this horse wins. And with each success Nashua has in the elite world of this kind of horse racing, Ann and Billy become closer than they ever have been. And maybe through the shared new hobby, maybe these two can work it out. Just maybe. By Billy's death in 1955, Nashua will have competed in 16 races, winning an overall purse of about $750,000, which is enormous money. And Billy wants to celebrate all of his success by buying himself something nice. In this case, a fancy new airplane. And it's not just enough to buy the plane for Billy. He wants to visit the plane as it's being made and It is off to Pittsburgh, Kansas. Billy does go to check out his new toy. Hey, isn't Pittsburgh, Kansas my wife's hometown? I wonder if anybody here remembers her. Maybe like her father, who Billy does meet after he goes to the cemetery to pay his respects to Anne's parents that aren't buried there. The book, The Two Mrs. Grenvilles, suggests that there was an early husband as well, that no divorce was ever obtained from, and just skipped town all those years ago and never looked back. Much to Billy's horror and then delight, you better believe that the town of Pittsburgh, Kansas, sure does remember Angie Crowell. Now, Billy's got the goods to get a divorce from Anne and free himself and to manifest his own dreams, which may or may not include Marina, back in play. And Billy can't wait to get home and reveal all to Anne. Billy is so, so close to getting free. So let's set the scene, y'all. It's October 30th, 1955. Billy does arrive from his Pittsburgh, Kansas trip back to the Oyster Bay property to drop the dime on Anne. But he doesn't get to do it then, because there's bigger news. There has been a prowler reported all over the high-dollar estates in Oyster Bay. The Woodward's own pool house has been burgled. The whole community is on high alert, and both Anne and Billy. Just think about this for a minute. High on pills, liquor, and about to be Billy's dreams of revenge are just whipping each other up. They are speaking French to each other as they are hunting their property with loaded shotguns. They don't want the Prowler to hear them in English if the Prowler's out there. I mean, they spend all afternoon hunting the property with loaded shotguns, each having different manifestations of a secret. Also, Ann and Billy literally have an arsenal in their basement, but they can't prowl all night long. There is a dinner party to go to, after all. Edith Baker, Grand Dom herself, as well as the mother of Billy's best friend, Granville Baker, is having a party that night. Edith is hosting 58 guests in honor of the Duchess of Windsor, Wallace Simpson. And there is no one in the world that Anne looks up to more than the Duchess. Wallace Simpson is Anne's poster on the wall, her role model, her everything. Anne is looking to imitate anything Wallace does. Wallace has the most style, most charm, and most panache Anne has ever seen. And it is here, investigators, with the places laid for the 58 guests for a party most swank at Edith Baker's home, 
that we will pick up the thread on next week's episode. Thank you so, so much for tuning into Done and Done today and all the kind feedback and reviews and for telling your friends too. I am so grateful to have you with me on this journey. Until we meet again next Monday, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.